Welcome to the Better the Pond podcast. In each episode, Warren Berry, CEO and founder of Instinctive Solutions, talks to amazing people doing incredible things that lead the charge of generosity. We'll discover what makes each guest a bit of an odd duck and how they continue to better the pond around us. The migration starts right now with our host, Warren Berry. So, Jamie Mason Cohen, I want to thank you ever so much for taking the time out of your very, very busy schedule to be a guest on my Better the Pond podcast. My pleasure, Warren. I'm honored to be here. Yes, this is great. Uh, and as we talked a little bit earlier, you know, you have a, a very busy schedule. You have the wife and you have two young children and, and uh, you've got lots going on. So, again, I really want to thank you for, for putting this time forward to, uh, to tell your story. I'm glad to do it. Yeah. So let's jump right into this. Um, so, so Jamie, I want to know what got you from being a gosling to leaving the nest to being the person that you are today. What's your backstory, Jamie? My backstory is uh, I worked in New York City after calling Lorne Michaels' office 25 times, and I ended up at Saturday Night Live for several years out of college. Uh, I'm going to I'm, I'm pull you. I'm going to pull you way back from that because that's going to be actually part of leaving the nest. I want to yeah. take you back to being a Gosling. Where did you start from? Even before that, way way before that. Where were you born? Uh, was born uh, in Toronto. Ah, GTA. Okay, so you started yes. off. So a good, good, solid Canadian, and and but. Were you raised a Leafs fan? That's the question. Yes, I was. Uh, we actually had Luke Richardson, who uh, was the first round draft choice of the Toronto Maple Leafs, live in our basement when he was an 18-year-old rookie with all the pressure of one of the premier hockey cities in the world beckoning. And my father, who was a lawyer for a scalper, at the Maple Leafs uh, named Mike Waslin had an inn at the gardens and knew that the Toronto Maple Leafs wanted their first round draft choices, their young players living with a nice family in order to avoid the uh, obvious obstacles uh, of a big city. And they chose us. And so uh, as a Gosling, I was mentored by, a friend to this day, Luke Richardson, who is an assistant coach for the Montreal Canadiens and played in the NHL for close to 20 years. Now that's part of a great backstory right there. <laughs> Isn't it funny though, Luke Richardson goes from being this, uh, you know, playing for the Leafs to end up being a coach for the Habs. I mean, isn't that ironic? The irony, yeah. <laughs> So you grew up in you grew up in Toronto, and, yes. and take me from there. I grew up in Toronto, and uh, I uh, went to university at Western in London, Ontario, mm -hmm. where I majored in film theory and English. I knew that I wanted to do something creative with my life, but didn't exactly know what. I didn't know how to break into film or TV. I didn't know if, even know if that was an option. So out of school, I interned on a set 
of a movie called Last Night, directed by Canadian filmmaker Don McKellar. And I found myself on rooftops in downtown Toronto, measuring the light for the director of photography for 10 hours straight. And my, my friend brought me a Subway sandwich so I wouldn't starve. And I still wanted to do it after that uh, experience, believe it or not. But again, I didn't know where to go or what to do. And I was in a bagel shop in Thornhill with my late grandmother at the time. And I was brainstorming with her. And she says, well, who are the most successful Canadian TV producers in the world? And I had to think about it. And I said, well, Norman Jewison, who made movies like In the Heat of the Night and you know many other uh, legendary movies. I said, well, he has this big TV production house and talent development place in Toronto, but I think it's very competitive. She says, well, who else? I said, well, Lorne Michaels, I think. And she says, Lorne Michaels, didn't he grow up in Toronto? And it turned out that Lorne Michaels went to the same high school as my father and my uncle. And so she says, why don't you try and reach out to him? So it was my grandmother and my father's insistence that I started calling after, at that time, there was, no, there was no internet like today where you can just Google. I looked up NBC in uh, 411 and I found New York City NBC Studios and I found a number, 212-555-1212, something like that. And I got to Lorne Michaels' office and I, they basically turned me away 24 times. And that's where we started the other conversation. So, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you back further back again into this. This is all part of the story. It's all going to evolve. Um, so you were interested, obviously, in, in theater and production and whatnot. When you go back into your earlier days, when, whether you're in elementary school or you're in high school, was that something that interested you back then? Were you involved with um, any of the production side of things and like, what was your, what was, what, your dad was a lawyer. So where did this go, all this creativity and, and this lust for, for production come from? Well, I was always creative. Like I did drama lessons and I did art lessons and I won art awards, uh, painting. And so my mother was a very creative person, even more than my father was, although he has, uh, a certain amount of creative instinct. He just uh, was more latent, but my mother um, encouraged it especially. And I saw her uh, do many types of arts growing up. So uh, definitely from my mom. And uh, I think I always had this balance between the masculine and the feminine. Um, not that feminine is more creative, um, but I always felt like that uh, I was very much involved in high-level sports, like baseball and hockey. But somehow, I always knew instinctively or intuitively that I would move into a creative path, even if I was in a more traditional job. And I knew that from the time I was about 12. I don't exactly know how I knew that, but that's also around the same time as I found out about handwriting analysis, which is one of my different uh, life threads. And, and we're going to go there because that's actually something that I am very interested in and also the story of how that, how that came about. So that goes all the way back to when you were 12. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so you said you said you don't remember how it started. Yeah, that story. Remember the Mm -hmm. defining moment. The defining moment when When, it came. Yeah. Yeah. When that all sort of unfolded, like, you know, you remember when you were 12, but there was there something that all of a sudden just sort of came over you and it just naturally evolved. When it comes to my creativity. Yeah. And the handwriting and all those pieces put together. Well, I think it's, in some ways, I think it's nature. I think uh, the nature part of it was I responded on an, uh, I'm very emotional and highly sensitive. And I think that's been a curse and a blessing, more of a blessing in my life, but something that I needed to manage and sublimate. And I was just drawn to um, the the inspirational quality of a film. And I think the difference might be is where someone else might watch a film and say, wow, I really like that movie or that TV show and then move on. I would put myself in the position of the writer and I would, didn't even know what a director did, but I would think, why did they make those decisions? Or I would watch a movie like Dead Poet Society when I was just a few years older and say, I want to be a teacher like that. Mm-hmm. And, and I became a teacher like that, according to other people, uh, on some level. But it wasn't just I wanted to be a teacher. It was I wanted to effect and impact people like that character, even though it's a recreation of a, of a real person or an amalgamation of real people. So every time I saw a movie or a piece of art, I would look at it almost from a creator's perspective. I don't know where that came from. It's nature. I think the nurture is I had parents, especially a mother who said, and my grandmother who would say, keep going as the improvisational activity. Yes. And they rarely would say no. They would say, yes, let's get you art lessons. And even though I didn't take to art lessons, they would try some other kind of art and I would, you know, dropped out of drama classes or dropped out of art classes but they continued to nudge me and guide me without being too pushy, which as a parent now, I, I understand what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? And I was, I was going to put this into perspective because if you look back to, the, to then and you say and you wanted to be a teacher and you had this creative side and you looked at things from a different perspective, are you doing the same thing presently just with people? Yeah, well, I would say on several levels. I think um, during COVID, I noticed that people in one of the areas that I'm in, which is speaking facilitating, I saw in speaker groups I was in that with, I I was understandably so because people, many people I I had seen look, you know, came across as being anxious and uh, uncertain about the future and the near future and were losing opportunities. I saw lots, a lot of people saying, how do I fix this contract? How do I um, make sure I'm paid properly? How do I get in front of people in person? And when that happened in March, about, it was like the, uh, around March 15th or March 16th, mm-hmm. I had a different approach immediately. My instinct was more of a, a creator, which is, oh, this is an opportunity, even though I've lost a third of my, my work, in one week for a whole year and I have a family and I have responsibilities. My instinct was, you know what? 
I was in New York on 9-11 and I overcame that even though it was scary being in 9-11 and afterwards. You know what? I got laid off from a job three and a half years ago for no fault of my own. They just, the school shut down. And each time I realized that I fell upwards and the creator in me was, how can I look at this from the perspective of finding a time now to create and to fall upwards, to do something, create something that I, that I hadn't done before. So I think being a creator or the creator mindset is not just um, always looking to create, which is how I would perceive myself. It's also about looking at any opportunity and saying, how can I create an opportunity or how can I create a transition to this opportunity out of this crisis? Mm -hmm. Um, and that's going to be actually another question we're going to get to in the podcast because we're going to actually talk about your superpower, which you've already, you're already leading into this already. You're making it into a great segue. Um, I'm going to jump a little bit and I want to go back to the 25th call with Lauren Michael's office. And I want to go from there and I want you to bring me up to speed on what's going on presently today in your backstory. Well, the 25th call, I don't really remember exactly what I said, it was over 22 years ago, but there was a lesson there that everyone who's listening to this, whether you've been speaking professionally for 25 years as a coach, as a facilitator, as a creator, um, I instinctively then, cause I didn't know about it. Now I know how to do this quite well. And I, I, I help other people do this is I pitched myself effectively those 24 times. It was more about, can I come and pick his brain? Which is not a good way at any level to just ask someone to pick their brain. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but busy people get asked that a lot. Mm -hmm. Can I have coffee? Now it's going to have a Zoom call. I think it's finding out if it's, how can you be, make that person's time valuable because they don't owe you anything and they're not entitled to have a talk with you. Um, instead of, what's in it for you, which maybe those 24 times it was, hey, I'm a young, hungry, ambitious guy. I would love to just talk to Lauren Michaels to find out how he made it and how I can be just like him. And that's really, as a 22-year-old, how I was. And I get those type of calls weekly because um, <laughs> I'm a former teacher, but also I get that from you know, experienced people who are you know, my senior in different ways. Mm -hmm. And... I realized that you need to find a way to pitch yourself in a way that is not completely selfish and that shows your value to the other person. I don't like the term adding value because a lot of people say that and it's a bit hollow these days, but making yourself valuable, showing humility, um, reaching out with a really clear intention of what you want and asking that person for, any, for their time. Because speaking for introverts like me, uh, takes energy. It's like soul. I, like I'm giving a part of my soul. So I don't, uh, you know, give that away lightly these days. It's not, a, I'm generous. I would, I would hope I am, but I am also deliberate in my, in my, my generosity because I just don't have limitless amounts of g energy. Mm -hmm. So on that 25th call, I shifted from all about me to what can I offer Lorne Michaels? who probably has everything that I could ever imagine and I have nothing to offer him. And so I pitched differently in that moment. I made it more about 
here's what I can offer you as opposed to, you know, what can you do for me? Right. He doesn't know me. And he gets, I found out Lauren Michaels gets about a hundred calls like this a week. Wow. Um, and I just, I just shifted my change. And I also focused more on the assistant and I focused on what can I do for this assistant who I never met because she's probably annoyed. And she was about having to answer this call every Tuesday, which is when I called <laughs> uh, to ask if I can speak with Lauren Michaels. So number one was when I learned how to pitch and I had this call, I had a call yesterday with uh, Western University, my uh, former university is doing a story on me. And I was speaking to this uh, third year student, a very nice, you know, young woman, and humble and really was curious about different components of my career, and how I ended up to where I am now, and where I'm going and where I came from. And she was fascinated with this idea. She wanted to know about that 25th call. In other words, she didn't actually say the 25th call. She wanted to know why Lauren Michaels pick up the phone, what it was about my approach that resonated, where maybe 99 other people he might not have picked, you know, taken that call. And I said, it all comes down to how you present yourself so that it's making yourself valuable, even when you have nothing else to offer. And I said, but that's not my issue you have to find out how you can make yourself valuable you can read a book of that person you can write a review you can um really research them and show genuine interest in what they do ask a question that shows that you've read the blog of that person like before we went on i read a blog that you had written a video blog and also another blog of your award in 2016 and your you know, work when it comes to chronic pain and revolutionizing the workforce through a combination of Colby and work you have been doing for 25 years, even though I didn't fully understand one of the terms, I looked that up too. So it's really about looking into the other person mm -hmm. and not in a stalking kind of way, but in genuine interest, showing genuine interest. Um, and that's what that 25th call was about. And that's what I learned the difference between most people make those first 24 calls in their head. I'm going to get something from this person and somehow think they want to just chat with me, which they don't. Right. And the people who break through at any level is figuring out what their 25th call is. That's, uh, that's incredible. Um, and so when you look at, you know, you say pitch, um, would you say that it was pitch or that you were actually being of service? And I don't know if that sounds kind of, I don't want that to sound kind of fluffy, but I always look at things as like, how can I be of service to someone else rather than trying to, to, to pitch them on what I have to offer? Yeah. Well, yeah, you're, you're to your point. Um, it could be just semantics. Mm -hmm. I think that with very successful people, there's very few things that they actually need. Right. That's not to say that they don't want things. There's a difference between the need and the want. So for me, I had no idea um, how to possibly be of service to Lauren Michaels in that situation. Part of it was boldness or the Yiddish word that I learned from my grandmother, chutzpah. It, <laughs> it's having the boldness to pick up the phone Mm -hmm. In those days, it was the phone yep. <laughs> and, and call and see 
maybe it's not impossible. And maybe my persistence, which I'm a big believer in never, ever giving up, mm-hmm. your path may take a long and winding road, but it might, it might end up in, in, a, in a dream that you never ex- expected, but a very interesting place. I did not know how I could be of service to Lauren Michaels. Um, but I knew that if I pitched before of service in a way that was memorable mm-hmm. and that showed confidence, but a quiet confidence and humility, but believing that I could be of service to him if I got an opportunity to work for him, then I'll figure out how I can be of service once I'm in. And that's another area of, of pitching is I have been on many, several calls, even in the past few years, where people said to me, I only took this call because someone else recommended I speak with you. And I had no intention of working with you on this 20 minutes ago before the call. But you've been so persuasive and so convincing that I'm actually considering it, even though going into this call, I had no intention I was ready to just say no to you after the first few minutes, but you're good at this. So that's not being manipulative. I think there's a difference between persuasive and manipulative and that's where the pitch comes in. Mm-hmm. And so I think it, when those young people reach out to me on LinkedIn or, or older people, it doesn't matter age. And I don't think it's complicated, but I think people might not just reflect on it. And I spent time reflecting on this because I think it's an important part of success no matter how talented you are, you still need someone to say yes. You still need an opportunity. You still need help. No matter every successful person we both know, uh, whether it's Lady Gaga or Brian Grazer, the producer, or Lisa Kudrow, or Stephen King needed someone to say yes, including me. So, and I do believe in pressing the elevator and having you know people come up um, after you. But that doesn't mean I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press the elevator and let everybody come if I, have an, if I have an opportunity to help them. They have to earn it. They have to deserve it. They have to show me that they've done their homework or else 99 out of 100 don't. Right. And so that's where the pitch comes in. So what does a pitch look like? It's short. It might start warm or you compliment the other person genuinely in a way that's, again, um, genuine and sincere but you find something right away to connect with that person within the first 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of successful people don't like small talk because they don't have time. And it's like, okay, what do you want? And you need to be able to get in with a sentence. You need to be able to tell the problem that you're there to solve. If that's that kind of pitch mm-hmm. or that how you're different without saying that. And you need to tell them what a structure is in a clear, simple and concise way, and then open it up with a few pauses to give them the chance to ask questions. And if they're asking questions and interrupting you, that's good. If they're not and they're sitting back with a stone face, even with a mask on and it's just with their eyes, uh, you can feel that, then you you might wanna revise the pitch. And if you can develop how to pitch successful people about what it is about you that's a little bit different because everybody says they're different but most people don't put enough thought into that, you will, eventually, maybe after like me out of hundreds or thousands, um, get those people to open doors that you then have to prove yourself a million, you know, a thousand times through, but it starts with the pitch and then it's adding value. And I don't think you can do it in reverse 
because you don't know what that person needs and saying, how can I help you is not a great question I find because um, you're putting a lot of onus on that person to come up with something. It's like, no, have they, re- have they written a book? Okay, go review their book and then do a video call and, and send it to them and say, I loved your book, but don't ask them for anything after that. And then six months later, say, I followed you on Forbes or I followed you here or I saw this. I learned something, what you said, and I, I actually went out and I did what you said and I got a new client because of you. And then don't ask anything and then do that again in three more months. And then eventually what happens is those people who are mentors, this happens to me many times over the years, become friends and they actually turn to you, which is now happening to me in my life. And those mentors are coming to me and asking me for my advice, but I didn't ask for that. It just organically happened after that give, give, give of whatever I could um, to show them how valuable their advice was and how valuable I am because most people don't act regularly. Some people act, but they don't act regularly. If you're a consistent action taker to a successful person, that stands out immediately that you're that kind of person and that you're not going to give up right away and that you're going to persist and you don't need them, but, you, but you've learned from them and you're willing to take their input and even if it's tough and put it into action. That's what stands out to me when I hear people do that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it is so important to actually build that relationship, um, you know, along the way, rather than what, you know, what can I, what can I get from you or just making an off comment is actually getting to to authentically know that person and, 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 and build that relationship and trust with them. And I think that goes a long way. So, um, so from you going on, I mean, I know that, you know, you've got your Saturday night leaders program. I know that you're doing, um, you know, you're, you're doing your, um, graphotherapy you've done, which I found very, very fascinating. You've got your TEDx talk and the things that you've done, um, along the way, you got your book. I mean, you've got a, you've got a quite a, <laughs> quite a, uh, a great professional story of the things that you've accomplished in your life. Um, so from, you know, the time from your Saturday night live days into, and how's that, how's that brought you into today? Well, in some ways it, because it was a early, I don't know if I would call it formative experience, but it happened when I was in my early, early to mid twenties, it did have a impact um, over many different aspects of my life. So one area that the time in New York working for Lauren Michaels and Saturday Night Live and Broadway Video, his production company, has had a positive impact on myself and hopefully others is uh, my teaching career. So when I came back from Saturday Night Live after 9-11, uh, they had a cut back at NBC and they had a cut back in the production company by a significant amount. And I realized that it might not be feasible to live in New York under a Canadian visa beyond a certain time. So I made a tough decision and I came home and literally started from scratch or so it felt like that. And um, I did freelance work. I directed commercials for a restaurant chain and I I did a a site, I did segments for sports, TV and all different kinds of things. But I didn't like the freelance component of it. I wanted a little more stability. Mm -hmm. So I, ended up going into teacher's college. I got into one out of all the ones I applied for, got into Brock. And uh, I almost didn't make it out of teacher's college because uh, I had one teacher who was training me said I was too creative 
and I was trying to bring New York into uh, a Mississauga elementary school, and it was just too much. Um, I actually had to go in front of a board, and the head of Brock Teachers College looked at my paper, and I had the highest mark marks when it came to the, the actual teaching, yeah. and he said, why are you here? I said, I don't know. They said, I'm just too, you know, too creative, and he said, do me a favor. Whatever the next teacher that they put you with says in whatever elementary school, just if they say, you know, wash the windows, can you just do that? And when you get out here, when you leave this teacher's college, please graduate. I'm going to read about you one day. And I always remember they said that uh, because it was quite, uh, quite, quite a close call. I thought I, I wouldn't make it through. And I graduated from Brock. Uh, with my Saturday Night Live style theatrics that I wanted to, you know, push, not push, but I wanted to integrate into the school system that I found a little bland. And a lot of teachers were, I love teachers. My wife's a teacher. I'm a teacher, but I saw a lot of teaching out of textbooks. And I was like, no, kids need to be engaged on a holistic, on an organic way, like Dead Poet Society with Robin Williams, which was my, you know, real uh, inspiration to go into teaching originally. Mm -hmm. And, um, and uh, Frank, uh, Frank McCourt, teacher man, who wrote Angela's Ashes. Yeah. Uh, those were the way I taught. And, he, and in both cases, the fictional version and also Frank McCourt, they also were almost kicked out for similar things that I was doing. And uh, very unconventional. I made it through Brock. And I ended up winning a, a Ted Huffington Post International Teachers Award. I was the only teacher in Canada. There was 40,000 applicants around the world. And I was flown with my wife to TED Education, where Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis were uh, presenting. And I presented on a sidebar. Later, I would do another TEDx main stage, but I was on a sidebar and I created a new kind of teaching uh, in 2014, uh, which is a whole other story. But essentially it was, I wanted to three-dimensionalize books or literature like Siddhartha by Herman Hesse for kids with learning challenges so that they could better grasp and have a love of reading even if actual reading was somehow difficult for them. Mm -hmm. I wanted to bring in media and music and art and integrate it into this so that they experienced the work. They didn't just have to read it and answer questions out of a text. And uh, no one had really done that in high school anywhere in North America in using technology like this until I did. And I was given this award and I presented and that led me to uh, get recognized by TED International and they asked me to do a TEDx talk on any topic that, uh, you know, fit the theme. And I ended up doing that in Luxembourg and, you know, but anyways, so with teaching, I integrated what I learned at Saturday Night Live from the performers, seeing how comedians prepare, uh, how they tell stories, how um, people deal with nerves over the course, because every week at Saturday Night Live in that world feels like a final exam, Warren. Every week, people are trying to find a way to manage how they can come up with new ideas through their own brainstorming, collaborating with different kinds of people, with, with different types of personalities and eccentric views on the world. How do you do that every single week other than the, day, the weeks off? And some people made it through and some people had trouble adjusting. So I could see the, both the, the examples of extreme examples of people who got stronger and other people who had trouble dealing with that. Right. And I created uh, a whole viewpoint on teaching that was not from the standard. It was 
literally zig, I would zag. And it was embraced once I actually got into the school system, so much so that teachers started uh, learning from me and I ended up teaching teachers. So I almost got kicked out of Brock and I ended <laughs> up teaching teachers how to teach in the way that is their Saturday Night Live. Not, not trying to be me, but how can they find their differentiator? How can they tell stories? And I wrote a book about it um, called Live From Your Class. Everything I learned about teaching, I learned from working at Saturday Night Live. And that is how do you bring in your own version of when you're laughing, you're learning, which is one of the taglines from a comedian named Jack Milner. Um, how do you create work environments where people are engaged, people feel acknowledged, essentially what they call now psychologically safe spaces. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to create a psychologically safe space where people loved learning, regardless of what their thinking style was, whether they're more inward looking or more outward looking, whether they like working alone, whether they working in groups. I wanted to find a way for teachers or anybody who engages coaches, uh, you know, a manager of a team, how can you engage people? And it started with the genesis of working in that world for four years in New York. Wow. That's, that is absolutely fascinating. And I can't imagine, you know, in Saturday Night Live, every week was something new. It was, it was just the pressure must have been on absolutely all the time. And, um, and I could see how that would actually engage. Some people would engage to that and just thrive. And then some people just like, this is just too much. And I got I gotta walk away. Yes, absolutely. And the beauty of working in an environment like that was Lauren Michaels had an empire. So he had a production company, which was producing live programming, comedy tours, animation. He, there's, so many, there's so much going on there that once I got in and I was seen as a little bit like a mascot, I was like this young Canadian and there's mostly Americans. And uh, because I went through and interviewed with Lauren Michaels, I was ambitious and I wanted to learn as much as I could. And so I said yes to everything. I didn't just say I needed to be in this box. I wanted to build my own boxes, but I wanted to learn first and everything I could. So someone would say, hey, there's an opening for this new pilot. Oh, oh can I do it? I didn't even know what the job was. Can I be on it? So I would go and I'd work on that and like, well, we're casting for the movies, Ladies Man. Oh, can I sit on the casting sessions? I don't care what I do. I go in the casting sessions. It was a nonstop learning environment, which you asked how that experience has influenced even today. Well, it's come full circle, literally, because not only was it, it instrumental in helping me take a very unconventional mindset to teaching, which turned off some, but um, was well embraced by many different teaching environments, you know, after the fact, was you say on your website, I think be you, you know, yep. um, that's a way to deal with pain. So I always struggle with that because um, my, one of my mentors, great mentors in teaching Jim Barry, who was also like a teacher man, the, the real life teacher man, Frank McCourt. I took his uh, course uh, to, so I could teach high school because I was an elementary level at Ontario College of Teachers. And I took the summer course, which I didn't really want to take. I'm like, oh, for all July, I got to be in a non-air conditioned room in University of Toronto. Um, Oise. And this guy was a lifesaver because he said to me, you're different. You're like me. You're like a younger version of me. 
and he'd jump on the tables and he'd talk and he was a bit older, you know, he's at the time, late sixties, he'd jump on the tables and he would recite Shakespeare. And I, and he's like, but you're like me, Jamie. And I'm like, thank you. That's a huge compliment. And he says, but remember something, no matter what they say, he goes, what, even beyond teaching, you need to, you need to really internalize this. Cause I don't think you have, I said, what's that Jim? He says, no matter what they say, no matter what the principal says, no matter what the vice principal says, no matter what your department says, you nod your head, you smile, and you close the door and you teach the way you want to teach. And that is a great lesson of that's how I would, I, I be me. <laughs> I, I was being me, which is not good grammar uh, because <laughs> I was an English teacher, but I was being me. Every time someone said, well, can you just be a little more traditional? Just do grammar this way. And I'd nod and go, yep, yeah, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Close the door and I teach my way. And the students love me for it. The parents love me for it, or at least most of them did. And, uh, you know, so full circle, that's not just about the teaching career. So I have this production, which I'm, I'm deliberately being a bit evasive until it happens. Because I'm a believer, you write it down, you do right. it, and then you talk about it. But I'm doing something now where all those skills that I observed 20 something years ago, I've been putting into action now, running a team, pitching, reaching out to people, bringing together different perspectives, knowing how to run a set, knowing how to write, knowing how to um, storyboard. All of those things that I learned like my sister said, she's like, this project that I'm doing now is such this massive project um, by, I think, you know, my standard, but even the people I'm collaborating with. And it didn't, it, for, not for a minute, Warren, did I hesitate. Not because it's arrogant, but my sister summed it up better than I could. She said, what, what you're doing now is a, is a, is a cumulative, is, a, um, is cumulatively everything you built everything you've learned over the past two decades. And it started with a call to Lauren Michaels when I graduated from the University of Western. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump to this. So I've got a couple of questions for you, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump a little bit because I wanna tie this in. And uh, one thing that's on my mind that, was, that I find really fascinating, and it was a friend of mine actually had talked about this, and you had led into this early in this conversation about you're saying about, about being too sensitive. And you say, you know, and I'm sure, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna speculate um, that there was probably a time in your life where you, well, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be so sensitive. And you said, you said earlier, it was a, it's a blessing or a curse. Um, and, you know, one of the things that he brought out was he says, you know, when he looks back, he said that sensitivity that he, that he had back then, which we was told not to be so sensitive, was really his gift now because he's, he's so intuitive. He sees things differently and, he, and he's, he's, he's so sensitive to his environment that that's actually what's made him who he is. And he's, and he's very successful. Um, and I look at sort of the same thing with you and the same thing with your creativity um, which is going to tie to my next question, you know, and we're, we're sort of jumping ahead here a little bit, but it's leading into, you know, what are you doing to better the pond and why are you doing it? And, and this really ties in actually nicely because I see the, the gifts and the talents and the person that you are, 
of taking that forward and actually presenting into the world. So I see it as what you I see it as what you're doing to better the pond. And how would you explain it? In different areas, professionally, when it comes to handwriting analysis, which is the act of writing starts in your brain, sends a signal down the nervous system to your hands and your fingers carry out the director of the directions of your brain. So your writing paints a picture of what you think. Mm-hmm. And each stroke on the page is directly correlated to another personality trait. Handwriting analysis, I help people discover their strengths through handwriting. And so that's one way that I better the pawn is I will speak with now virtually a team of 20, 30, 40 people. And on the spot with no prep, it's only 25 years of prep because I've been doing this for <laughs> several decades, um, is I will, they'll hold up their handwriting. I have to turn it on. It's, you know, it's, a, it's like almost I feel like I go into a trance and um, takes a lot of energy from me. But I can tell them within two minutes or less where their strengths are, how they're showing up. And I can also, if they ask in an artful way, I don't believe in feedback. I believe in suggestions. I don't think people love feedback. I've learned that as a sensitive person. I want to grow. I want suggestions, but I want someone who I can trust in the way they deliver it because you can really uh, affect someone in a negative way without meaning to is um, I'll give them strength and blind spots within two minutes or less. And I can literally see it in about 15 seconds. So that's one way that I can better that, that I better the pawn. Um, I feel like as a teacher, there's no profession that I know other than maybe nurses and doctors um, who can, who better the pawn on a daily basis and really impact people. It's not a cliche when uh, if someone says uh, if they just impact one person's life, I know as a teacher, I was fully committed as a teacher when I was doing that. And uh, I loved uh, really loved helping students. There was, you know, maybe in my life, I don't know, other than my own kids, something more gratifying than that, I, as exhausting as it was. And so I feel like I better the pond of thousands of kids by helping them reach their potential or at that moment, guide them where I've had students stop me in malls and say, Mr. Cohen, I'm like, oh, hey, what's up? And she says, you know, you taught me in grade nine, eight years ago. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. She's like, we learned, we we studied that book. Um, do you remember that book about that, uh, that autistic teenager? I'm like, yeah, of course, you know, you know? Um, and she says, um, I ended up going into psychology because of that book. Mm. I didn't know what I wanted to do at 14. There was one book and the way we read it, the way we analyze it, the way it, that ended up helping me. And um, I would say professionally, the project that I'm talking around I don't know when this will air, but the project that I have now is a project that I believe, genuinely believe it's going to impact a million people or more around Canada and the world. And not just in a, in an energy, not just in terms of entertainment, but mm-hmm. it's going to inspire. Uh, it's going to inspire many, many people, especially small business owners during this crisis. And so when I was looking at ways that I could create something, you said earlier about sensitivity, that, that's a whole subject that I've, that I've written. I have behind me 25 journals. I do these vision boards and journals of my life, and it's filled with me analyzing my own sensitivity. Um, so much so that whether or not I write a book on it, um, I, I can quote 
so many studies and people uh, who have written books that on this subject, because I've always struggled with it, um, not necessarily in a bad way, but um, like you said, growing up in the 80s as a young man, now the world's a little bit different. But growing up in the 80s, it was don't be so sensitive. It was seen as weak. It was seen as overly almost feminine or unfortunately, I don't believe this obviously, but this is what I was told many times is what girls do. Stop crying. You always cry. Um, here's a book that was over my head as, as a teenager, like didn't help or let it go was another great one. Let it go. Yeah. And uh, those things don't work. I mean, I studied Buddhism uh, quite seriously for many years. So I went to a Buddhist temple when the Dalai Lama came to town in uh, 16 years ago, the Buddhist temple, the, the, the nun, uh, Genla, her name, that's what we call her, Tibetan Buddhism. And I'm Jewish, but I just was fascinated with Buddhism as a way to maybe deal with my sensitivity, that she liked my curiosity with Buddhism. And I had asked so many questions in the Friday night sessions that she asked me to represent <laughs> Western. I didn't realize I was going to represent um, the Canadian perspective on on buddhism which is now when i look back i felt a bit, a bit of a fraud but i went into cbc studios and i was there with a uh, phd psychiatrist from new york and i had to answer four questions without getting the questions beforehand so i could study on uh why what attracts people from other faiths to buddhism and i talked about i still have the disc on sensitivity i said i wanted to be where i wasn't triggered uh, which is more of a clinical word, but I didn't, you know, when someone said something, I'd feel this, my heart palpitate, I get excited, I would get uh, hurt, I would go inside, and I would often disconnect myself from that person. And uh, meditation helped me, um, at least on, on a certain level. Beyond that, I wanted something more, but it did help me understand those feelings and just sit with them and not ruminate on them. So, but my sensitivity in terms of creativity, absolutely. My sensitivity about what happened around me during COVID, the idea, if I tell you this idea, uh, and our mutual good friend, Gare knows a lot about this, because um, he was part of it um, through, he saw this process develop. It's not an ingenious idea. A lot of people in our world in speaking facilitating could have come up with this idea a lot of people could have even taken steps to try to put this into action to help this million people that I've, the way I've discovered it. Mm -hmm. The difference is, is that my, like you said, acute sensitivity to the pain and, and I would say compassion to the people I was working with and you work with some of these same groups, I think. Yep. I leaned into that pain and I started asking myself questions about why it was affecting me so much. I don't always like the word why, because why can make others defensive and even ourselves. But yeah. <laughs> why, why has a, a double-edged sword? Yes. But I was saying, what can I do maybe is better than why? And what is making me obsess about this? And then I looked at other people in my world and saying, they seem to be obsessed maybe that's a strong word, but they seem to be focused on, mm. they're sensitive about other things. And I said, if they're all focused on that and they're sensitive about that, what, how do I feel in my heart? And because 
I think you're sensitive too, I'd imagine, is I'm so in tune with um, others' pain mm -hmm. where I feel that I can feel people's pain uh, on quite a deep level where it can be a bit much, but I can also feel their ups. But here was a time where there were so many people hurting and so many people despondent that I wanted to see if there was a kernel of transition in that crisis. Like, is there something within that crisis that might not be an opportunity? It might be, there's still too much dust and there's too much pain, but is there somewhere in that pain where there could be a bridge or a transition to a better place? Mm -hmm. And I started writing. I have my books that I'm always here. So I'm always writing and I'm, I'm, I'll keep these, I'm going to physio and write, you know, and I have all these, I'm always bringing these things like a mad scientist. <laughs> and um, I started writing down on my notes, my sticky notes, which I learned back when I worked in the creative world in SNL. And I'm writing sticky notes. I'm writing in journals and I'm filling up journals and journals of ideas that I don't know where they're going, but they're all in the same direction. Mm -hmm. And then one day I sat down and um, it wasn't one, you know, climatic idea, but it was this three months of not talking about it, of writing it down, of continuing to speak in groups and then saying, that's it. And that eureka moment, that aha moment ended up because of my sensitivity to pain, which for so much of my life, uh, was I don't know if I, I didn't have a diagnosed mental health issue, but I definitely felt like I was, uh, you know, very sad at, you know, many times in my life and I'd have these huge dips, but then I would come up and I did get stronger after those difficult times. And so here was a way of seeing my lifelong of my lifelong challenge of dealing with my sensitivity and realizing that what I just, what I've put together and how I've attracted all these different people who all said, yes, not one person said no to be a part of this was a combination of what my sister said, cumulatively of 25 years, including cumulative sensitivity has gotten me to where I am. So interesting enough. And I have to be, I have to honor your time because we talked about this uh, before we even got on this call. So I want to, I want to make sure that we're on track here. Um, so there's one thing that you can see how your sensitivity obviously became your, one of your, your greatest gift because, and that's what you're contributing back into the world. And that's how you're bettering the pond. Um, I would love to have you at some point in the future um, uh, again as a guest and, and talk about being the odd duck, because I think that that is an incredible story for you know how that you felt you were you were different and how you know there was and everybody else told you that but yeah you turned around and actually are now going to contribute back to a million people because of that and I think that's a fabulous story um, and uh, that'll be a million people who will who will thank you in the end because you're so sensitive so that's 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 fantastic um, so so in the um, in relevance of time. Uh, because you said you got some running around to do. So, uh, so Jamie, where, where can we go to find you? Where can my, my listeners go to find you? Well, you can find me on LinkedIn, Jamie Mason Cohen. Uh, you can find uh, 
I think just Googling my name, Jamie Mason Cohen, and I would uh, imagine things would pop up, even though my website apparently it's down. <laughs> shut down this morning. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. So it says 500. So that's yes. not, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, which I'm trying to fix. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm uh, pausing on this question. I would just say LinkedIn is a good place to start, but also my book, you know, live from your class uh, is now an audiobook format. And if you are interested in that story of, like you said, taking sensitivity and turning it into uh, really multiple careers and reinventing yourself. Cause I think now we live in a time when, um, many people are looking to reinvent themselves at different stages in their life. And Absolutely. I have been a uh, master of reinvention <laughs> through <laughs> various fields. And uh, that is uh, what the book also touches upon. So I would say LinkedIn or the book. And when the website eventually, uh, hopefully gets up by the time this airs. Yes, hopefully. Um, and uh, and the, uh, the book is on um, Audible, correct? That's where they can go find it? Yeah, Amazon and Audible. Yeah. Amazon and Audible, right. And it was a bestseller on Amazon. Even better. Yes, it was. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. Um, and so, and this project that you got, that you're working on, so now when can we expect something to be produced? When, when, when are you putting the meat on the bone? Well, these things take time, even uh, with uh, full steam ahead. So the goal is 2021. Okay. So January 2021, June? I would say toward the, the end of the year. End of the year. Okay. Yeah. Well, just so we know what to expect. And I'm, I'm anxious to, uh, I'm really anxious to see what you're doing. I'm not, I won't give away any secrets. So I know that uh, you haven't revealed anything to me either. So what, we, what, what I don't know, I can't share. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, Jamie, I want to, you know, it's a, in, in relevance to time, I said, I know you got to get running, but I really want to thank you um, for everything that you're doing. I want to thank you for being you um, and, and really, you know, taking, um, you know, again, your sensitivity and, and, and forwarding that and, and moving with it so that you can actually help other people. And especially in education and teaching, I think that it's so incredibly important. So thank you ever so much for your time today. I truly, truly appreciate it. It's been a pleasure, Warren. Thank All you. Right. So there well, thanks for landing on the Better the Pond podcast. Do you know someone who should be in our flock? Contact Warren at warren at instinctivesolutions.ca to tell us their story. Until next time, what ripples will you create? Cheers. <laughs>